right. Uh, two, two verses for us this morning as we continue the Gospel versus Religion Sermon Series. Thank you for joining us. I'm Harold, one of the pastors. It is a joy to bring to you God's Word. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. It'll also be projected overhead. Okay, Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. I'll read it for us. Whatever, what, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We have been trying to distinguish gospel versus religion. Today, what difference should the gospel make in how you work? What difference should it make in how Christian people work? Now, by work, I mean parents. By work, I mean volunteers and interns. By work, public or private, paid or not, marketplace, and even if you're in between jobs, I am pretty certain There are certain things you ought to do in that day, even in between jobs. What difference should the gospel make in how Christian people work? So the assumption goes, a lot of people think, well, if you're Christian at work, that means, of course, hey, just just stop getting so drunk at those holiday parties. Right? It should mean at least that. Or being a Christian at work means you should not steal or treat or be fraudulent with your company. Of course, being a Christian at work means you should not engage or encourage filthy, obscene talk or promote immoral culture, maybe the culture of your coworkers. On the flip side, other people think being a Christian at work means you ought to always be happy, always positive, and every chance you get, you got to share your Christian faith. Is this what it means to be a Christian at work? Uh, certainly going to say as your pastor, it doesn't mean less than those things, but I do think it means a lot more than those things. I just got four, four headings for today, four topics, why you should work, second, how you should work, third, temptations at work, and fourth, the gospel at work. Okay, four headings, why work? How you should work, temptations at work, and then fourth, the gospel at work. First, why work? Why work? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says you were made, you were designed, you were created, not for some aimless random purpose. And in fact, you were not created to figure out your own distinctive personal purpose. You were created by God who himself works. Why work? You were created in the very image of God. Your maker made you in his image and your maker works. Our creator works. We exist because God works. The world continues to exist because God works. And our God takes enormous satisfaction and pleasure In his work. Oh, you could very well say, God derives infinite pleasure in his good creative work. Therefore, 
To work actually makes you act like God. To work occurred before sin or corruption even entered into the world. Our original design, I will say, you're going to be less human, less fulfilled, some way, somehow. If you cannot reflect and imitate your creator who works. Even in the kingdom of heaven, there will be work. But without any of its frustrations, any of its corruptions, any of its letdowns, any of its sweat and toil. Before sin entered into the world... Work was present because God works. And even into future infinite eternity, reserved for those who repent and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, there will be the perfection of work. So, as you and I get to work, we imitate and reflect God to bring order, beauty, justice, repair, hope, healing, joy, some service to the world. Work makes us human. And work actually makes us act like God. That's the first why. Here's the second why. Created by God in the image of God to work. Well, the same God who created us to work, he created us to work for the glory of God. Created to work by God for the glory of God. That's what we just read. It's the first verse. Colossians chapter 3 verse 23. I'll read it for us once again. As Apostle Paul, he wrote, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So Christian people are never just working for human approval, human applause, human recognition, or for human bosses. Christian people have a higher allegiance. They bow their heads and bend their knee and confess to an ultimate Lord. Which is why this is such a threat to the Chinese Communist government right now. These Christian people, although they're civil, peaceful, orderly, and obedient, yet deep in their hearts, these Christian people, they worship something or someone else greater than the government. Christians have an ultimate boss, a higher boss, and their aim is to please none other than Jesus Christ, who is Lord. So why do we work? Created in the image of God who works. And we are created for work by God for the glory and the worship of God. Second, second heading. Then how should you work? How should you and I work? First, I'll put it plainly. And this is straight, straight from the Holy Scriptures. You should do your job well. You should do your job well. You should do a really, really good job. I think I told you this already. Several years ago, I went to a Christian leaders conference in Northern Cal. Was flying back on JetBlue. You know, that's like a 45-minute flight. But it was one of the most turbulent, violent airplane rides. I will never forget the overhead bins burst open. There was screaming. There were a couple people crying. I broke out in a cold sweat. My stomach was up here, nauseous. Now, let's just suppose that the pilot of that plane was, or it happens to be a Christian. And what do I want as a passenger jet blue during that turbulent ride? What do I want most from Mr. and Mrs. Christian pilot? 
I'll tell you what I do not want. I do not want that pilot to close his or her eyes and pray because they didn't train hard. I do not want the Christian pilot to get on the intercom and start quoting me Bible verses or say God has a wonderful plan for your life. I want that pilot, especially for he or she a Christian, please land this plane safe and sound. Just please bring us home. Please bring us home. Land the plane. Do your job well. Do your job well. Martin Luther, that great German reformer, said, what kind of shoes should a Christian shoemaker make? What kind of product should a Christian shoemaker produce? Here's what Martin Luther said. Does it mean that because you're Christian, you should engrave crosses on the soles? Tattoo them with some blatantly explicit Christian sign? No, Martin Luther was once reported to say, make the finest shoe. Please just make the finest shoe and sell it at a fair price. How should people who have been affected by the gospel go about their work? Well, first, it's you should do your work well, do your job well. I mean, for some of us who get the sheer luxury of the support and sacrifice of others, we get to go to graduate school called a seminary, and we get to study the Bible because we think God is calling us to a future of actually teaching and studying the Bible ourselves well, I, you know, I challenge seminarians and myself. What is your number one job as a seminarian? What's your number one job as a student? That is your work right now. You're a full-time student. What should you do? Well, seminarian, you should study the scriptures well. And in fact, it's very vital to a lifelong ministry because if you have a love for the study of the Holy Scriptures, most likely you're going to elicit and summon and attract more people to love the study of the Scripture when they listen to you. Do your job well. Here's second, how we should go about work. People who have the gospel percolating, working in their lives, tend to, tend to work really well with other people. And they work for the love and the service of other people. They're really good team players. Someone tells me, you know, Harold, the road to therapy and recovery is to talk about it. Talk about it. Okay. I'm going to talk about playoff baseball. The New York Yankees just got knocked out. You guys know I'm a diehard fan of another team. And the New York Yankees, I'm not a fan. They used to have this closer who was the final pitcher who would come to finish a game by the name of Mariano Rivera. A sportscast, a sportscaster, talk show a host. You know, they all exaggerate. They make overstatements. But I don't know if there was this crazy of an overstatement. He said, Mariano Rivera, you, could be, you can argue that Mariano Rivera was better at what he did than anyone else was at anything else that they did. <laughs> you can argue that Mariano Rivera was better at what he did than anybody else has ever been at what they did. People praise him for his Closing skills, his baseball brilliance and mastery, and the stats speak for themselves. But what a lot of people may not know about Mariano Rivera is also is how beloved he was as a teammate. 
I love reading stories about older baseball players, how beloved, how respected and trusted. There was no scandals to speak about with this man. He was amiable. People said he was generous and sacrificial. He was personable and sincere. And then you talk to the coaches or upper management. They revere this guy. They revere him to this day. Now, the press will not ever tell you this. After he walked away as arguably the greatest closing pitcher in the history of baseball, he went off quietly to, for now, spend the rest of his life for community service and charity because Mariano Rivera happens to be a Christian man. Christian people ought to not just do their jobs well, but they ought to work well with others and do it for the love and service of others. Why would that be the case? Because who you work for, who has called you to work, who is your ultimate boss and Lord will change the complexion of what you do with your coworkers. You see, they're no longer just competition. You should not be so ruthless and brutal just to get them out of the way or step over their heads or go behind their backs. If it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you ultimately serve, your co-workers aren't just competitors. They maybe should become co-companions, collaborators, maybe even friends. Here's what Jesus said. He summarized the, all the commandments under two. It boils down to these two commands. Here's the second command. Matthew chapter 22, verses 39 to 40. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. A couple weeks ago, we went over the greatest commandment of all. Love the Lord your God with all that you got. The second greatest command is love your neighbor as yourself. Question, my friend, do you know primarily the opportunity in which you get to love your neighbor as yourself? Do you know what the best, most easiest, and primary way you get to love your neighbor as yourself? You see, if you're bringing some kind of product or technology or therapy or service or care or healing to the common world, your primary way of loving your neighbor as yourself is to do your job well and do it for the love and service of others. You are thereby fulfilling the second greatest commandment. So how should Christians go about work? Do your job well. Please just land the plane. Second, work well with others and for the love of others. Third, I'll just call it this way. Work with heart. Work with heart. Heart. He says work heartily. Work heartily. For it's the Lord Christ you serve, not men. Okay, listen. <laughs> Christian people shouldn't do a lot of things that non-believers do. Yes. At the same time, Christian people should be doing a lot of things that non-believers do. We do the same things. It looks the same. It might even smell the same. The product might be the same. But underneath the hood, you see, if you check out the condition of the heart, Christian people do the same thing that non-believers do, but for entirely different reasons. I mean, you do know God is as concerned with your motivations as your emotions. Of course, God not, is as concerned with not just your productivity and excellence and your returns and your, and your numbers that you can produce, but he's also as concerned with why you do it and who you're doing it for. 
See, what's your bottom line? Really, what's your bottom line when you work? If your bottom line is recognition or promotion, a bigger pay, more applause, more awards, more status, it will affect how you work. But if who you work for is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, underneath the hood, actually, it will infect and affect how you go about the rest of your work. You can actually do it with heart. And here's, here's what's the toughest, but here's where it really shows up. Christian people can work heartily even when they're not rewarded properly. Christian people can work still with heart even when others may bypass you, dismiss you, or just straight up come against you. Question for you, my friend, this morning. Do you ever think that the Lord Jesus Christ himself did his work for you without heart? Do you think Jesus just drudged through life? I mean, do you think he was just constantly complaining and cynical about work? Do you think our Savior and our Master went about his ultimate work of giving his life away so that you could have a new and never-ending one in him? Do you think he went through that without heart? No, the Scriptures reveal to us that for the joy set before him, Jesus Christ himself for the joy, a passion set before him. And I assure you, did a kind of work that is way, 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 way more difficult than the work you'll ever do. Endured the cross, despising the shame, so that he might save some. Do it with heart, for it is Christ Jesus, ultimately, whom you serve. I mean, listen, my friends, there is nothing, I don't think many people can outdo this, where if you want to worship God and glorify God and honor God and reflect God and imitate God in this broken, fallen world, there's very few things you can do than do your job well and do it well with others and for the love and service of others. And you do it with heart because you want to worship and glorify Christ. And you want to provide and make a living for your family and your loved ones. And even beyond that, you want to save and give, give away sacrificially and generously and mercifully. In doing this, my friend, make no mistake, that is not any less spiritual. That's not any less missionary. That's not any less Christian. No, 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 no. In doing that, you are loving God with all that you have and you're loving your neighbor as yourself. So go about your work differently. Go about your work the way that Jesus went about his work for you. All right, here's a couple of temptations at work, though, that get in the way. You see, we were made by God for the worship and the glory of God. So you see, if God is not your glory, if God is not at the center of your worship, something else always will be. It doesn't matter what you profess, what you sing, doesn't matter how religious you are. If God is not the center of your glory and worship, something else always is, right? For a lot of us, it's all about social approval. Like, how well do people think about you? That might be. Well, for a lot of people, it's work. 
Work takes the place of God, and from work you derive your value, purpose, and meaning, and your very identity. Here's a couple symptoms that you've fallen into this first temptation, which is the worship of work. You worship work, you make too much of work. Here's symptom number one, that this temptation has gotten a stranglehold on you. First, your self-worth comes from your work. How you feel about yourself most often, most, most strongly. You see, if someone asked you, what's your self-esteem like? How do you feel about yourself? Are you high or low on that, bottom, uh, on that, on that uh, measuring chart? Well, if it all really depends upon your work, you've fallen into the worship of work. So if you're doing well, you get recognized, you get inflated with pride, puffed up with pride, which is very fragile and insecure though. Because you got to keep it up. And then if you don't really succeed at work or get recognized for your work, you get deflated and you get all too depressed. Yes, of course, Christian people get depressed and disappointed and let down. But I'm talking about a crushing, unrelenting, kind of life-debilitating depression. In Every Good Endeavor by the author Tim Keller, he quotes a young doctor. And a young doctor admitted to this. We could have that quote up. Next slide. For many of us, being productive in doing becomes an attempt at redemption. That is through our work, we try to build our worth, security, and meaning. Now listen, when what you do and how well you do it becomes the basis for your self-worth... Work will become enslaving and exhausting. When your self-worth depends upon your work, you will burn out. Because you'll never work enough. Oh, trust me, my friend, you never will. You'll never work hard enough. You'll never work good enough. You'll never reach the point where you have arrived. It'll never be enough for you to start really feeling you are that, that, meaning, meaningful, valuable, and significant. First symptom that you've fallen into this temptation, the worship of work is yourself or it depends upon your work. Here's a second symptom. You cannot rest. You cannot rest. You really cannot lay down your work. There are no Sabbaths for you. There is a day called Sabbath. God specifically says it's for the worship of God and for you to rest from all your work. For you, Sabbaths are always optional. They're the last priority. If it happens, great. There's no rhyme or reason to your schedules. You never really wind down. You kind of scoff at recreation. What is that? I forgot what that is. But notice the word recreate and recreation. Your health is deteriorating. Relationships are falling apart. People wonder what you're doing, where you're doing. They forgot that you exist. And most of all, your walk, your spiritual condition, your walk with God. There's no time for it. You just can't, can't rest. Because worship of work has taken over. Can I remind you and tell you of the gospel again? My friend, you never, ever, ever have to work that hard. You never have to work for your salvation. 
You never have to work for your identity or your significance or to feel like you truly matter. No. But you do get to work for your Savior. Christian people never have to work in that dreadful, enslaving, exhausting, burnout way for their salvation. But we do get to work for our Savior. And if you really do work for the Savior, Jesus Christ, you work well, you work well with others, and you work with heart, and his, the Savior will never work you to death. Jesus Christ is just not in the business of working you to death. He, in fact, promised that, uh, take my yoke. It is easy and light, and I'm going to give you rest for your souls. The gospel of Jesus is that you don't have to prove your existence and justify your self-worth. The gospel finally lets you rest from proving your existence and proving your worth. Here's the second temptation at work. On the one hand, you can elevate, make too much of it. You'll worship work so you never rest. And your self-worth fluctuates with how you work. The second temptation is to make too little of work. You dread work. You just dread it. You despise it. You never want to do it. Never look forward to it. Call this a state of laziness or slothfulness or inactivity. Sometimes there are debilitating physical conditions that cause this. But I, as your pastor, tell you, this can be a spiritual condition too. A spiritual condition of inactivity, of poor spiritual health. And the symptom that you have fallen into this temptation is this, is that you barely do your job. You barely do your job. You always do the bare minimum. It's a sloppy, shoddy job. You can't be trusted. You avoid it or put it off. You're wasting company resources and time. And it's very hard to keep a job this way. And maybe for some of you, you may think, well, as long as my boss hasn't noticed, I mean, they haven't noticed in like four years, and my coworkers really don't notice, I just get by with the bare minimum, I think it's okay, I it's okay, I just can coast and just do what I can do to get away with the little that I can. Can I ask you again, can I remind you, if you're a Christian brother or sister this morning, but your Lord, your ultimate boss notices, your ultimate boss notices Christ Jesus, your Lord. And for some of you, you may not like what you are doing. It is a grind. It's very hard. Others of you are trying something new and it's overwhelming right now, the transition. Really stressful because you're learning so many new things. But can I just suggest to you that again, if it is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your ultimate boss, whom you love, You can learn to do something better if you love the one you're doing it for. I mean, our fellow pastor, dear Pastor Owen over at Christ Central Presbyterian Church in Virginia, as well as my brother-in-law Paul, who spoke at the Married and Family Retreat, it is no mistake, both of these pastors wrote and talked about something that I dread doing. They talked about doing dishes at home. It's like stereo sound. I was so glad my wife wasn't around last weekend. She didn't hear these messages. So I haven't done the dishes yet at all. But after today, I'm on the hook. It's not part of my story yet, but now I'm on the hook. She's here. Owen spoke about as a child, he never did the dishes as a chore, and he hated doing them voluntarily. He never did them. He grew up as an adult, did not change much. It's not like as you get older, all of a sudden you like doing things that you always dreaded doing. He says... Doing dishes is not my favorite thing to do in life, but 
he got married. And his wife, Margaret, is really happy when he does the dishes. He started to notice Margaret is really happy when he does the dishes. And Owen admits now to this day, although it's not his favorite thing to do, he says he has learned a lot more enjoyment in doing the dishes because of the love of his wife. And she's happy when he does it. Sonny, don't get all crazy here, okay? I'll find ways. It might not be dishes, but... Temptation at work. You barely do your job. You barely do your job. Well, I ask you again. Who are you working for? Last thing. The gospel at work. The gospel at work. The first sign that I really hope of the power of the gospel at work in your life would be this. Oh boy, this is going to be tough. We are going to really have to detox and unwind all the pressures and influences, direct and subtle, all the cultural emphasis and indoctrination that most of you have probably received from this thing called the American dream. But the American dream is not a gospel dream. The American dream says this, you ought to pursue only certain jobs because only certain jobs pay you a certain amount. The American dream, especially for a lot of Asian immigrant families, is if you want to be secure and comfortable in your life, there are only certain jobs that afford you financial security and social status. But I think what the gospel should do is that it should open up many more doors for job searches and possibilities of jobs. Because the gospel doesn't tell you you should always go after financial security and social status. The gospel should open wide many more searches and possibilities. The gospel tells you you ought to do and figure out what God has wired you and designed you passionately. You can do it with heart and you do it well and you do it for the service of others. That is really what you should do. And whether or not people recognize that or applaud it or pay you a certain amount should be absolutely secondary and low on your priority list. You see, the gospel gives you a countercultural significance. It ought to give you a dignity in certain work where you think a lot of people don't dignify. And at the same time, this gospel that opens up many more job doors, many more job searches and possibilities, should close all those doors filled with discontentment, envy, competition, and comparison. That's the gospel at work. The gospel is at work, is when you have your significance, not based upon family or friend or what the culture says about you. No, you have a significance that no one or nothing could ever strip away. And it's not based upon what you do or how much you make. Here's the second and last one. What if you're in a dead-end job? What if you are in that grind? (laughs) You are in a dead-end job. You got dead-end people, dead-end co-workers, dead-end future, a dead-end boss. What are women supposed to do in this situation right now, pastor? Oh, please tell me. 
Well, I don't have to be the one to tell you. I'll let Apostle Peter tell you. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 19 reads this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Listen, it's very easy for anyone in this room to be good and respectful and kind and obedient to wise, competent, excellent, gracious bosses. Apostle Peter turns around, though, and talks to his Christian fellow brothers and sisters and says, I want you to act the same. I want you to be submissive and kind and courteous to the unjust boss. Not a good one. But the unwise one, be kind and courteous still. Oh, the problem is many in this room, you feel like this meme from Parks and Recreation. And I felt this many times too, or I've caused this as well. I'm not crying. I'm just allergic to jerks. I like Chris Pratt. What a face. I'm just allergic to jerks. So what do you do when you got a jerk boss, you got jerk coworkers, you got jerk food, jerk traffic, jerk pay, jerk benefits, what do you do? God tells you, behind the jerk people and the jerk conditions is a very good and sovereign Lord. And if you would still be kind and courteous and do your job well. By the way, this applies perfectly to marriages. I mean, spouse, you do know you ought to treat your spouse not on what they deserve. You shouldn't be jerkish because they're jerkish to you. But you treat one another as you would treat the Lord Jesus himself and see what the Lord, only the Lord can do. When you put the gospel at work, really at your work, even to the most jerkish of bosses and situations, and you're able to put forth what Christ Jesus has done with me over and over and over and over again, how many times has Jesus Christ treated me far better than this jerk deserves? But it's only the way that Jesus did it and how he does it and how long he did it that actually redeems and changes me inside out. 